Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to see you this morning. It's chilly outside. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our study. We're in lesson three of First John, still doing a little background information. And what we're going to emphasize, what we started to emphasize last week and will continue to do so today, is significant because what often happens if we're not careful about meanings of words and emphases of the writer of the gospel, I'm sorry, of the epistle, is that we will read particular statements and misapply them or misinterpret them or misunderstand them. And so you remember last week we talked about a distinction, <clears throat> the distinction, biblical distinction, between the word relationship and fellowship. Now, the difficulty with this is that the word uses the world, uh, the world uses the word relationship differently than what is stated in the Bible, although the Bible doesn't use that word. It uses other words, but we use that word to say this is what that is. We are related to. And so, as we talk about this, it's not wrong to say, well, my relationship with this person has been broken or I'm no longer in relationship or whatever. Because the world uses relationship as something that varies, good or bad or indifferent, according to circumstances or whatever. We know that, don't you? Today, you have a good relationship with someone. Something happens tomorrow. You're no longer in relationship with someone. Someone says, I have a relationship now, and then this is kind of one of those things that the relationship continues on the basis of how we're both doing with one another. Do we get that? We know that. But we're using the word relationship biblically, or at least applying that word, which is used by the world in a different way, in kind of a loose way. We're trying to use it biblically in a very particular way. So biblically, we're making a distinction between our relationship to God and our fellowship with God. Okay, that's what we're doing because we want to make sure that when we read the epistle of First John or any of the epistles, we don't confuse what is being said about our lives and our walk and whether we're being obedient or disobedient, etc., as applying to our relationship with God in Christ or our fellowship. We have to be careful here. So let's continue with that. Last week, we made a distinction between the word relationship with Christ and our fellowship with God. This is what we learn, and I want to kind of, hopefully I'll stick with my notes because I want to make specifically clear for us. We learned that we were brought into a biblical relationship. Now, what else did I use besides the word relationship last week? And I'll probably say it again. Relationship used this way, by me at least, is our union with or our union in Christ. It is our having been joined together relationally in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Biblically, our relationship in this particular context is that work of the Holy Spirit 
in birthing us into the kingdom of God and baptizing us as, us, as we see in Romans 6 into Christ. We have been baptized or placed. The word baptizo is not a word that has necessarily to deal with water. Water is a, a symbol of this work. <clears throat> we have been baptizo, baptized, placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Correct? <clears throat> and what is the basis or why have we been able to be baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit? Because our enmity or our separation from God as a result of our sin has been dealt with at the cross so that the blood of Jesus has paid fully, finally, and forever every single aspect of the curse every single aspect of the penalty that we deserve to pay so that when Jesus said in John 19:30 what did he say in John 19:30 it is finished when he said that everything about our lives as opposed to God was paid for everything contrary to God's will as to our unforgiveness has been paid for. It is finished. The payment has been made to Telestai. It's paid for. There's nothing more to pay. The Son of God has paid for it. Therefore, no one else can pay it. The Son of God has paid for it. Therefore, no one can overcome or undo the payment. Do we see that? When the Son of God has paid for something, nothing can alter that payment. It has been sealed in the blood of Christ and verified or, or authenticated by God the Father as acceptable on the day of resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the Father's authentication that what my Son has done at the cross is everlastingly, permanently the way it is. Amen? Amen? This is the reason, this is the basis of our relationship with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Do you notice how I said it? Our relationship with God, God the Father, in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, what am I emphasizing when I say it that way? I am emphasizing that which we always should make sure we have, at least in our mind, if not when we're talking about, we don't, we don't have to say it this way, is that our salvation is fully a Trinitarian work. It is the will of God from all eternity that we would be his people. It is the purchase of that will and the, and the, uh, the making good of that will by the Son of God at the cross in the incarnation, correct? And it is the application of that will, Jesus having paid the full price at the cross, that is made to us or in us when we were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So can this relationship that we have with God be unsettled? Now, can you feel it is? Can you maybe... Be afraid of it, it is occasionally. The feelings and the perceptions may be there. 
But what is the truth? Who we are in Christ has been willed by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, right? It has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. It is a completed work. And we have been brought into the good of it by the Holy Spirit. You remember this. <clears throat> In giving us the Holy Spirit, God has authenticated and secured our status of in Christ. Remember these words from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance. That says this. I'm going to pick on David again because he is an attorney. David, I don't know whether they do this anymore, but I think they do it in a different way. Years and years ago, when documents, let's say the king had a document to sign. This is an order, whatever it is. It's a decree. It's whatever. He would sign this thing. They would put it in some kind of an envelope or paper. And then what would they do? They would put this hot stuff called wax and put a signet ring. Remember that? The signet ring. They would stamp it into that. And what was that called? A seal. That was sealed. That meant that everything in that document is authenticated and genuine and is under the authority of the one who has put his seal on there, correct? That's a document, a legal document. Now, today, if you are doing something, I think notarization is similar to that. Today, notarization. So if you need something, you go to David and he notarizes it. He takes that little squeegee-looking thing and he presses it on the paper and it embosses or makes the paper come up and then he signs it. That is a legal statement that what is in this paper, what has been uh, stated, what has been, whatever it is, is legally verified. It's authentic. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are forever God's people sealed forever. Amen. Now, do we get that? Do we get it? It's important to get it because when we read some of these statements in this letter or others, it's going to look like one thing. It's going to look like this is not the case, but we have to make sure we differentiate the real meaning here. Now, this means that our salvation, this union that we have with God in Christ is built on the rock of Christ. It's built on the rock. You remember this verse, these verses from Matthew 7, 24, etc. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, have we heard the word of God? Have we acted on them? How did we act on the gospel? John 1, 12. Did we act on the gospel? You can say yes if you're saved. How did you act on the gospel? What does John 1, 12 tell us? To as many as those who received him, to them he gave the exousia, the authority to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name. Do you remember that? So when we heard the gospel, the word of God, our hearts were penetrated. Our hearts were pricked as we see in Acts 2. Our emotions were stirred. 
And I remember when I would watch a Billy Graham, um, uh, what do you call it, recording, I mean, a TV show, whatever, in the 1960s. And he was making a, a, an altar call, if you would. There was something in me. Ooh, I want that. I want that was a stirring. And I finally responded to that. And so that response to the stirring that God had put in my heart. First, he put the stirring in my heart when I heard the word of God. He first stirred my heart up with his word. Do we see that? This is the order of salvation. We hear the gospel. Our hearts are stirred. There's something. Any of you, you remember that day when your hearts were stirred and you realized sin and you wanted to be saved? Do you remember that? Oh, I want to be saved. And so Romans 10, 13, to all who call upon the name of the Lord, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Our response is our calling, our embracement, our receiving, our agreeing to that preemptive work of God in my soul by his Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says, those who hear these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell. Do we get rain in our lives? And the floods come. Do we get floods in our lives? And the winds blow, blew and slammed against that house. Anybody experience that physically, mentally, emotionally? Do we experience those things in life all the time? We experience them all, but it did not fall. Friends, Satan can attack all he wants. Our house will not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Amen. Who is this rock? Christ is this rock. We learned that in 1 Corinthians. And how immovable is this rock? Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able also to save forever. How long? Forever. Those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. As long as our rock upon whom we are built remains in the throne of God as the risen, reigning, ruling, returning son of man. We are there with him. Correct? We are there with him. So we're anchored. So this means this, and this is the last statement in last week's uh, class that A.J. reminded me I didn't say, so I'm putting it in here, A.J., just to make sure. Um, you're right in reminding me of this. As a result, our relationship in Christ remains constant. Now, can we remember that today? We do not have to be buffered anymore and worry about this salvation. We have to be wise and sober-minded. We have to walk as wise. Yes, we have to be obedient. We'll see all that in 1 John. Our relationship with God and Christ remains what? Constant while our fellowship is what? What word do I have there? I don't remember. There it is. Developmental. Developmental. It's our fellowship. 
that we are experiencing with God on a daily basis. Now that we've been, that we've seen that our relationship with God is built on the rock of Christ, let's again turn our attention to the reason for this relationship. One more time, and I've already done this, but I want to hammer it in because I find so easily happens to many of us is that when life's storms and winds and waves begin to batter us, one of the thoughts or fears we have, if we're not doing well, if we're not obeying, if we have whatever, is we begin to worry about what? My salvation status. We've done something and or we hear something and the thought comes, have I lost my salvation? Is it too late for me? If you're built on the rock of Christ, is it possible for you to lose your salvation? Because, you see, we are God's possession in Christ. Jesus has inherited us. We saw that in Psalm 2. I will give you the nations as your inheritance. We are his. And he is not going to lose us. We are his because he, he caught us and he brought us in and he keeps us. We are his having nothing about ourselves indigenous to us as a reason for him to save us. But simply because of the predetermined mercy of God, he saved us. So remember we saw in First John, the first several verses in John, that John's emphasis in this letter is our fellowship with God. And his warnings and his instructions are to promote and protect that fellowship. So as we go through John, we'll see that everything that John is talking about has fellowship as its goal and not relationship. John is not speaking about if you do this, you're going to forfeit Christ. He's not doing that. If you do this, your fellowship with God is going to be affected detrimentally. Why? The creation of this divine human fellowship was the very reason that God made us. Why is fellowship so important? Because God in himself is a community. A community of three equal divine persons. We know this. And these three divine persons exist in an, in an eternal and perfect fellowship of love. And so in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What are the two pronouns there? Let us and our. Those are plural pronouns. And we won't go back into all that that we've already covered. But these plural pronouns show that there is a collective aspect within God. And this collective aspect, as we know something, there's plurality here. There's more than one. And this collective aspect, aspect, as we have learned in the past, exists as the triunity of God, as three persons who exist, as I said, in an, in an eternal relational fellowship with one another. Why is fellowship so important? Because, you see, God has created us to image on earth, in the church, or in his people, to be the literal, visible, manifesting, functional, 
image or manifestation of that fellowship that exists in God. And that fellowship and all that are, there is about it, and there's a lot about it, is the display or is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. And so what is God's ultimate goal? That the earth may be filled with the glory of God. Remember Habakkuk 2.14. That's God's goal. And how is the earth to be filled with the glory of God? That the earth may be filled with his people who are the corporate expression of Christ, who are the corporate expression of the fellowship of the Godhead so that our fellowship, the way we fellowship, when we fellowship, why we fellowship, how we fellowship is going to be a direct revelation or should be a direct revelation of this fellowship that God experiences in himself. And so this is important. God has chosen that the most significant issue about himself who he is in himself. He's not just God. He is this God. That the most significant revelation about himself. The way the father loves the son and the son loves the father. The way the son loves the father and the Holy Spirit. The way the Holy Spirit and the father relate. You see the whole interchange. They relate in a fellowship of love. And it is this fellowship that God has chosen to be manifesting of his glory in only one way. And that way is in the way we fellowship with one another. That makes this, that our fellowship with one another is the absolute most important and absolutely the only way that God is glorified. Amen? It is the foundation of what God has done in the church. It is the reason why God has saved us. He has saved us to be the image of his inner person, if you would. He has saved us to be the image of his fellowship. This is why you were saved. This is why we were created. And everything about my life and your life, everything about our lives corporately, everything about the activities or the function of the church has but one goal, just one goal. And that is to manifest and mature, enlarge, the image of God's fellowship that exists and functions among us. Do we see this? And so typically what we do in the church is this, and this is typical, and I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not throwing stones at anybody else, just sharing in here. We typically hear in the church, okay, it's important to evangelize. Is it important to evangelize? Lester, you think that's important? Well, certainly it is. 
Why? Well, because God has told us to. Yes. Why? Because God wants to save others. Yes. Why? We don't ask enough what? Why? We need to keep digging and digging and digging. If we stay on the surface or not deep enough, we will miss the point. So why does God want to save people? Because he wants to glorify Jesus. Yes. Why? Because in all of this, the central issue that God is after to show us, Gordon, that he is a God of fellowship within himself and the glory of this fellowship and the relationships functioning through roles of love as manifested, remember, in us and in our salvation. So why do we... Why should we evangelize? For all of those reasons, but essentially, it is an aspect that has to do, or an activity rather, that has to do with what? Fellowship. Why should we read our Bibles? Well, we need to know the will of God, etc., etc. But why? Because it has to do with our fellowship with one another and with God why should we pray what does it have to do with our fellowship why should we give a tithe and begin at the tithe and allow God to enlarge our giving beyond the 10% the 10% is a down payment the Holy Spirit is called the Arabon or the down payment he is God's tithe to us therefore we tithe to him in response and Holy Spirit not only tithes is God's tithe but then he enlarges that why should we tithe well because the church needs money to continue well no why do we tithe it has to do with fellowship. I will probably repeat this next week because I'm kind of one who repeats a lot. I think I'm correct in this, and we'll find out, at least in 1 John. I believe that every instruction in the epistles, you know how many epistles there are? Okay, there are a lot of them. Every instruction in the epistles has to do essentially with fellowship. The protection, promotion of fellowship. And I think we miss this in the church. I know I miss it. I miss, I, I, you know, I don't get it. So that means this. The goal of everything a church does is to be toward what? Fellowship. And onto this ground, if you would, of fellowship, the ground of why God has saved us, is built the rest of this house of fellowship, which we are. So you take all this other and you add it. So why has the Holy Spirit been given to us? Fellowship. As an example, you remember in 2 Corinthians 13, I think it's verse 14, the end of the whole 
book. Paul's been dealing with a lot of issues, and how does he end it? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is the Spirit of God who brings to us the whole fellowship reality and experience and life. This is what the church is all about. The goal of our lives is fellowship with God. Through all of these means, these are means of fellowship. They're not separate from or, you know, then I don't, I don't put it on the same line, this, 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 and this. I don't do that. That's just, I don't see it that way. I see it this way, fellowship as the basis and all the other built on that to have to do with the building up of our fellowship. And why? Because it all speaks about the inner life of God himself. This means that the three persons of the Trinity dwell together, and I'm giving you three words here. Hopefully you'll pick these three up as essential aspects of fellowship. I don't know. I, the Lord just gave me these three. We've heard them all, but he kind of put them together in my mind like, yes, oh, yes. I, don't, I, I can't say this is exhaustive, but I know it's accurate. This means that the persons of the Trinity dwell together as a community who enjoy uninhibited communion through mutual communication. Those three in the church must be functioning in a healthy way in order for us to be experiencing the fellowship of God in the way that glorifies his name. Those of you who are wives, any wives in here? Now, be honest, really be honest. What is one of the most common, most basic issues you have with your husband? He doesn't seem to what? Communication. Communication. Now look, look. Is that correct, ladies? How many of your wives? And Gene will tell you. He doesn't communicate with me the way I need him to. Correct? What? I thought you would say no. I told her to say no, but she missed her cue. <laughs> now, or what is one of the biggest problems in relationships? Faulty what? Communication. Why is communication so important in a marriage or in relationships? Why? Because, you know, it has to do with the very vibrant exchange of fellowship. And when communication is strained, what is, uh, what is strained as a result? The fellowship. You see, in Christ, we are in community and in communion with God. Communion with God obviously means to abide. Remember in John 15, abide in me and I abide in you, remaining. So these three aspects must be functional in our lives and within the church to a degree 
that God is glorified as we fellowship together. God has brought us into a relational fellowship with himself for us to image his kind of fellowship through, through the way we fellowship with one another. That's important. Is that in your notes? God has brought us into relational fellowship with himself in order to image his kind of fellowship, the fellowship that exists within the Godhead. How? Through the way we fellowship with one another. This is the fellowship that John is promoting and protecting in the church. This is the fellowship. So John can be likened to God's contractor who is given the responsibility to oversee the proper construction of this house of fellowship. John's purpose is that we will experience and display God's fatherhood through our brotherhood. Do we see that? Do we see the connection here? Are we getting that today better than we have in the past? Amen. The fellowship within God is to be manifested to all the world through the way we fellowship with one another as the corporate body of Christ. This is God's call for us. Therefore, everything of function within the church has to do with fellowship. It's not fellowship and function, I don't believe. It's fellowship out of which comes function, and all of the function has to do with the fellowship and is to manifest and strengthen the fellowship. I see fellowship as the root and function, all the things that the church does, you know, this activity, that activity, the other activity, go here and doing this. and that. This is all the function or the fruit of fellowship. Amen? So next week we'll continue. And hopefully, I think, begin to get into the actual text of 1 John. Thank you.